You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation again. Revelation 22, verses 6 through 9 this morning as we look into God's Word. And the title of the message is actually a question today, Why Worship God? And so you'll have to stick around to the end because we won't answer the question until the end. But hopefully you probably already probably already know the answer uh, to this question. But we see here in our passage that John worships something other than God, and this isn't the first time that he's done that, and that's probably the reason why why we uh, see in some of the later or other epistles that John wrote, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he has uh, great warnings about false worship and worshiping idols, uh, and because he's speaking from experience. And here, of course, he gets reprimanded by the angel. But we are living at a time uh, in our nation's history where, the, where that is unprecedented, where we are beginning to see the, the first uh, vestiges of outright pagan worship within our country and false worship and these kinds of things that, you know, there have always been, there are different denominations and different uh, ideas in Christianity about uh, worship and these kinds of things. And that's, that's one thing. But uh, today we are seeing the, the beginning of pagan worship that, that really has, is unprecedented in our history. So these, these uh, things that are being spoken of here uh, and the various sins that we see discussed later in Revelation and have already seen, uh, while they in the past may have been kind of distant, to the readers of the book of Revelation. They certainly weren't in the first century when this book was written. Uh, but in American history anyway, they have been kind of detached. But it's not that way anymore. And we are seeing the beginning of that uh, taking place as we, as we speak. And so to me, that tells us is a great indication that the Bible is is true and the things that it says are true, although it may kind of worry us about our future because as I mentioned before, when uh, we depart from God's word, judgment comes. And so it behooves us to be strong in the Lord, as our hymn said, and to be strong in his word and understand the things that are spoken, because that's how, we, that's how we grow in our relationship with the Lord. We do not grow in our relationship with the Lord from uh, doing yoga or uh, these kinds of things that are coming into the church, these kinds of false ideas. We come to know the Lord by studying his word. That's how he has chosen to reveal himself to us in these times in which we are living. Uh, we see in his word that he, he had different ways in the past. He literally appeared to the Israelites. He was in their temple, uh, in that first temple that uh, we see constructed. He was with them in the desert, physically there, leading them in the pillar of 
fire and the pillar of smoke and then indwelling the tabernacle and later the temple and these kinds of things. But he's not working that way in the world today. He's completely revealed himself to us in his word so it behooves us to, to understand what is, what is here. And nowhere is this more important uh, personally, I think that this book of Revelation is probably the most important book in the Bible. If you can uh, go down that road, I'm not sure that that ranking the books of the Bible in importance is is something that we ought to do. But uh, as far as relevance for us today, the book of Revelation is is right at the top of the list. Nowhere in the Bible, as we're going to see today, is it made more clear that this is God's Word than the book of Revelation, and we'll see that again later. This book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, as we have seen. He is revealing Himself completely. One of the major mistakes that is going on in Christendom today is this idea that sometimes gets a title put to it, the red-letter Christians, that see the words of Jesus as being the most important part of the Bible. And if we just go by the words of Jesus, then everything is going to come up roses. And that, that is a desperate mistake, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is inspired by God, not just the words that are recorded that Jesus spoke, but all Scripture is inspired by God, and all of it is profitable, all of it is useful to us, and all of it is given to us for the primary purpose of making us more like Christ when we understand His words. And so this book of Revelation, while it is much neglected in Christianity, it is vital for us to have a complete understanding of who Jesus is and what he is going to do in this world. If we, uh, uh, one of the, the issues with the red letter Christians is that it ultimately turns into a social gospel. That's going to be the, the end result problem, that if we just uh, make sure people have enough food and have good clothes and uh, these kinds of things, then, you know, we'll make the world a better place. And after all, isn't that what Jesus really was all about? Just making it nicer and in, in these kinds of things. And ultimately, yes, Jesus is going to make the world a nicer place, but he's not going to do it through welfare programs. He's going to do it through bringing judgment upon the earth. And that's largely what the book of Revelation is about. And we're going to see that there are a number of reasons or a couple of very important reasons why the church disregards the book of Revelation uh, because it ends in judgment and there's a reason, there's a reason for that. But Christ is being revealed here, and he is uh, being revealed through revealing the future events that are going to take place that ultimately lead to him fulfilling his promises that he made to the world. He created life to be 
good and in perfect fellowship with him. We see that very early on in the Bible in the Garden of Eden. Uh, That's the way life was created to be. And ultimately, he's going to make it that way again. But it, again, it's, that isn't going to take place through our efforts. It's not going to take place through us uh, having food kitchens and making sure everybody has enough water and these kinds of uh, efforts. It is going to come through the judgment of sin. And so, therefore, sin becomes a very important uh, thing for us to understand and to deal with in our personal lives. And we've seen through Revelation 1.19, we have this great outline for the book of Revelation, right? The things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. That's the part that we are in now, coming to the conclusion of as we're looking at the new heavens and the new earth that take place only after a couple of very important future events that have not taken place uh, in this world, this seven-year tribulation. Basically, this is Revelation 6 through 19 is contained in this seven-year tribulation seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. If you remember back to Revelation chapter 5, where we have the introduction of this sealed scroll that is uh, that the Lord, that Jesus Christ is opening the seals of as these judgments are poured out upon the world. Essentially, God taking possession back from the world, the dominion over this world that was uh, Satan was allowed to have now uh, in the garden when he led. Adam into sin. Now through these judgments that are being poured out, God is taking control back of this world. And ultimately, that will take place when Jesus comes to the earth again. There are a number of issues that are going on that are included in other parts of the Bible that we disregard to our own detriment in reading the book of Revelation. Yes, Revelation is part of the Bible. It is, uh, but it is, it's an independent book of the Bible, but it's also very dependent. Your understanding of Revelation, I should say, is very dependent on your understanding of other parts of the Bible. And so, we see that God has promised that he will rule over this earth And he's going to come and do that when his nation believes in him. We see that in Matthew 23, uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, God promises to do that. Jesus said, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That Christ will not rule, Israel will not have its kingdom until they trust in the king of God's own choosing, who is Jesus Christ. And that when they do that, he will come again to the earth. It will take the seven years of judgment for Israel to believe in him. Then he will come again. He will establish a literal kingdom upon the earth. No other way to understand that kingdom from the scripture anyway. If we understand the words literally, it's described in Revelation 20 as lasting for 1,000 years. It says it six times. Repetition, again, very important. Uh, When God is repeating things in his word, 
They are important to him and therefore should be important to us. A 1,000 year literal kingdom, Jesus Christ ruling and reigning from literal Jerusalem on David's throne as was promised in the, throughout the Old Testament in the early parts of the Gospels. Uh, read the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. You see uh, Jesus being the promised one who's going to sit on the throne of David. That will happen in this millennial kingdom, a literal kingdom on the earth. And then at the end of that, we saw there will be one last rebellion. God will burn up his uh, enemies in judgment again. He comes and judges them at the beginning of the millennial kingdom or at the end of the tribulation. And then again, at the end of the millennial kingdom, people will still rebel against him. He will finally and fully deal with them. Great white throne judgment at the end of the kingdom. Uh, Satan cast into the lake of fire. At this point, everyone who has rejected God and his grace will be cast into this lake of fire, according to a literal understanding of uh, the book of Revelation, the things that we've seen. And then this eternal state that we've been studying for the last several weeks will begin Revelation 21 and 22. Last time, uh, part of the description of this uh, eternal state in the New Jerusalem, we saw that this life and light in Christ, that Christ is going to be there, that life is literally flowing out of him. It's flowing in this New Jerusalem, this uh, river of the water of life. And there's the... the uh, the tree of life is there. We saw that it's actually the way that it's described, kind of complex in the, the language there, that it's rows of trees on either side of this river down the main street of heaven, if you will, uh, the main street of New Jerusalem. These trees will have fruit on them. They'll yield their fruit every month, it says. And so time, it's not a timeless uh, existence. It's a time... There, there's still time there. It just lasts forever. Hard for us to, to wrap our minds around some of these things. But the fruit of this tree will, will give life, eternal life. The leaves of the tree will have some sort of healing property for the nations of the world or the people of the world uh, as well. There's no longer going to be any curse. The curse will have been reversed. Uh, in the eternal state. Uh, this curse that came into the world because of sin will finally and fully be removed. God himself will be there. We've seen God and the, the entirety of the Godhead will be there literally, physically, uh, and we will dwell there forever with God in this perfect state of existence, the way that he created life to be, which is uh, quite fantastic to think about. And then we come to verses 6 through 9 to, to wrap up this section. Why worship God? We see John not worshiping God here, but we're given a good reasoning why we should be worshiping God. So we'll see the, the words 
when the, these events will take place, that's kind of uh, can be kind of a tricky uh, proposition from the language that is here. We'll look into when all these events are going to take place. So uh, we're not setting any dates here, but we'll look at why why the language is the way that it is, and then finally we'll answer this question of why we should worship God. But notice verse six of Revelation 22, it says, And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. What we see here, beginning really in uh, verse 6, is what's known as the epilogue of the book of Revelation. Uh, In the NASB, it has the title or the heading there for the final message is over verse 10 in my Bible. It probably ought to be over verse 6, actually. Uh, Those things, of course, aren't inspired at all. The verse numbers aren't inspired. Those weren't put into the Bible until uh, most people think around the 1200s, the 13th century, which is kind of hard to believe, but... Uh, hard to imagine a Bible without verses, but again, those things aren't inspired either. But at any rate, the epilogue or the closing portion of the book of Revelation begins in verse 6 and continues all the way to the end of the book. And personally, I, I, uh, I spend a lot of time driving to work, so I listen to a lot of books at various times uh, uh, while driving. Uh, to me, and even reading books, of course, as well, the, the prologue and the epilogue, to me, if they're well written, are the, the most interesting, many times, the most interesting uh, parts of a, of a book where you get kind of how things uh, came to be in the part of the story that you're, uh, or the part of history, the events leading up to it that are interesting in a prologue, and then how things kind of concluded or additional information, supplementary information in an epilogue. And again, in the book of Revelation, there is so much contained in this epilogue as well that I find it very interesting. It's one of the more fascinating parts of the book because you're getting a recap of really the entire, the entirety of uh, what is being presented in the book. And so with some very encouraging uh, things and some great doctrine contained in this epilogue as well. And really, it is a repeat of what we've already seen in the prologue, which was found, of course, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. So this is part of the reason why the book of Revelation is such a great piece of literature and is a great pattern for us to follow in our, if you need to do any kind of writing or speaking, this is a great pattern for us to follow. Uh, You've probably heard it before. Uh, You tell people what you're going to say, and you say it, and then you tell them what you've said. And that's essentially what uh, John is doing here. He tells us what he's going to talk about in the prologue, Revelation chapter 1, 
And then he tells us, and then he tells us again what he's just said. And that's what we have here in Revelation uh, 22. And beginning in verse 6. And there are really three, three main points that are spoken about here that are repeated and uh, that he uses repetition throughout the prologue and the epilogue. Three main kind of points of this. The genuineness of the message is one of those that we're going to see that, that John has made a point throughout that he is an eyewitness of this and that this is something genuine that is being described to us. This isn't uh, uh, someone like John Smith and the founder of the Mormon religion. I think that's his name, unless I'm getting him mixed up with somebody else. Joseph Smith, not John Smith. Joseph Smith. Uh, it just kind of this unknown guy who comes out of nowhere and says, oh, God spoke to me, or actually an angel spoke to me and gave me this message on these golden tablets, and I'm going to create this new religion. And oh, by the way, part of my new religion is I get to marry as many women as I want. And you're just going to have to trust me on this because I, I can't find the gold tablets now that, that this was written on. So you'll just have to trust me on this. No, this is the Apostle John. This is someone who is a pastor of the most important church in the world at the time in Ephesus for a while. And oh, by the way, he lived with the Lord for three and a half years, specifically chosen by the Lord to be one of his apostles. He was the apostle that Jesus loved. He literally was laying on Jesus's chest in the upper room we see at the upper room discourse, this is somebody that these people could trust, that they knew, that it, who had a history, and he is an eyewitness of these things. This is a genuine message coming uh, to the people. And another uh, point, one of the three main points, the genu- I don't have it on the screen there, but the genuineness of the message, the imminent return of Christ, this is repeated over and over and over again throughout the book and in the, the prologue and the epilogue and warnings to unbelievers are a part that is very important and blessing to believers. Uh, so those kind of go hand in hand. Uh, God is coming in judgment. That's what this book is all about. And so if you're, you find yourself as an unbeliever, your sin is still being credited to you. You have no hope of, of making it right through your good works. You are going to be judged in fire. That, those are your, that's your choice. You can submit to the Lord, receive his forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ, humble yourself, trust in him, or you can think that you've got it all figured out and you can take your chances with the judgment of God. Uh, I would recommend trusting in him. According to the book of Revelation, no one is going to make it to the other side of that fiery judgment. So, genuineness of the message, imminent return of Christ, and warning to unbelievers and blessing to believers. Three main points of this epilogue and the prologue. But notice that we see 
you can see these uh, points that are on the screen here, that, that much of this is a repeat of what we have in the prologue. The originator of the message, God in Jesus Christ, Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So God is the originator of this message. He gives it to Jesus Christ, who gives it to an angel, who gives it to the apostle John, who then passes it on to the churches. Uh, And we see that, of course, in Revelation 22, 6 as well. These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants. This message is coming from God to Christ, to an angel, to John, to us. And the subject is the coming events, these future events that are to take place. Uh, the things which must soon take place, Revelation 1.1, again, very similar language, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So similar, in fact, that it's the same <laughs> language. The mediator is this angel, as we've already seen. The writer is John, John, the apostle John. Uh, a lot of critical scholarship when you when we uh, will do another introductory uh, series of messages, or maybe just one, when we begin our next book after Revelation is completed, and you go to the, to the scholarship about who the author is, and they'll come up with any number of arguments as to why uh, Paul isn't the author of Ephesians or uh, Titus, for example. Uh, uh, and why John isn't the apostle, or the apostle John is not the author of the book of Revelation. It's somebody else. It was written 200 years later. Uh, these kinds of things that, that modern scholarship will try to do. And make no mistake that, that it is nothing but an attempt to lower your faith in the Scriptures. These things come into the seminaries, these kind of ideas come into the seminaries. They're taught to, frankly, naive students who are trusting of their professors, and then they go to their churches and disseminate these false ideas. When, if we with, take the scriptures with any sort of, any sort of uh, seriousness or any sort of uh, thinking that they are actually the words of God, it tells us who the author of this book is. It tells us who the author of Paul's letters are. And uh, these ideas are really, should not be up for debate. And it does nothing but, again, lower, an, an attempt to lower your faith, the people in the pew's faith in the Scriptures. And so don't fall for it. Uh, John the Apostle is the author, the physical author of the book of Revelation. The audience is the churches. 
Revelation 1.3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. That's a great verse. Doesn't have much to do with, <laughs> with the audience uh, of the book. But Revelation 1.1 does where it talks about this being written to his bondservants. Uh, Revelation 22 and verse 16 later in the prologue mentions the churches again Jesus repetition who does this come from Revelation 22:16 I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches there's that word again that we see very often in Revelation uh, 1 through 3 over and over we see the Greek term ecclesia Here it makes an appearance again very late in the book as a reminder in the epilogue of who this book was written to, the churches. The main character is Jesus Christ. I've tried to emphasize that throughout our study of the book of Revelation, that, that it's not a study of the Antichrist. It's not a study of the future one world government or the false prophet, the mark of the beast, and all of these kinds of uh, interesting details that we see. That's not what the book is about. It is about Jesus Christ. And it gives us a, a more complete understanding of who Christ is and how he's working in the world. So if we know what he's going to do in the future, we have a better idea of what he's doing now to make those things come to pass. And so we get a more... By understanding, the main character of the book is, in fact, Jesus Christ. And the main point of the book is that he is coming again. That's the hope of the prophecy. The main point of the book of Revelation is is revealing Jesus Christ, giving us a more complete understanding of who he is. And the fact of the matter is that he is coming again to this earth to establish his kingdom. And it's going to happen soon. The soon return of Christ. And when John wrote this 2,000 years ago, it was a soon return of Jesus Christ. And 2,000 years later, it's still a soon return of Jesus Christ. Do not be discouraged. He is returning and his return is soon as we will see uh, today and saw in Revelation 1.7, it mentions this idea of his soon return uh, as well. And we'll get into what exactly that means uh, as we make our way through. So hopefully this review cements kinds of the, some of these uh, uh, ideas in our heads. We don't want to have studied the book of Revelation for coming up on two years now and not be able to tell somebody what the book is about. So just some of those, some of those basics. It's a book about Jesus Christ. It comes from him. It was transmitted by Christ to an angel, to the apostle John who wrote it probably about 95 or 96 AD 95 or 96 from the Isle of Patmos to the churches, literal churches in the first century. Uh, And it is a book largely in large measure about future events that will lead to Christ coming again. 
to this earth and establishing his kingdom and making all things new, making things the way he wanted them originally to be. And these words are faithful and true. Repetition. Faithful and true. This isn't the first time that we've seen this idea. We saw it in Revelation 19.9. The Lord used the same words. Then he said to me, Revelation 19.9, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Uh, Oftentimes in Revelation, these this phrase, faithful and true, or talking about the trueness of these words is meant to emphasize, obviously, a very important point. Revelation 19.9, those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, they are blessed people. These are true words of God. And if you'll remember, this marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, really kind of a description of the kingdom upon the earth. And yes, I believe there will be a literal uh, marriage supper of the lamb. It's going to take place in the kingdom period on this earth, probably at the, at the beginning and saved people will be there. Only saved people will be at this incredible feast that will take place at the beginning of the kingdom. And so those who are invited to this are very blessed people. You can Uh, Go back and listen to the message that we had about that. If you'd like more detail, it's essentially those who are, who respond to the, to the invitation in a positive manner. They're going to be incredibly blessed. Revelation 21, five, another instance of God emphasizing the, the trueness of his words Uh, It says there in Revelation 21, 5, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. God isn't just judging the world because he's capricious and and he's mean and angry and these kinds of things. No, he's judging sin because he wants us to enjoy life the way it is intended to be. One of the great misnomers of that is very prominent in the world today is that it's that it's loving and kind to allow people to live in sin and to uh, essentially destroy themselves. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's actually loving and kind to point out to people when they are uh, making mistakes so that they don't hurt themselves. It's loving to your child, for example, to uh, teach them to not stick a fork in an electrical outlet. You don't want them to do that. And so you don't allow them to learn their lesson or you don't allow them to continue down that road. You stop them from doing it so that they don't harm themselves. It is actually very loving and kind of God to warn us that he's going to judge us based on sin. That is loving. One day it's going to happen. And so uh, God wants all things to be made new, but in order for that to happen, sin has to be finally, fully, completely dealt with. That is something that he says is faithful and true. 
Well, how do we know that these words are faithful and true? Well, we've seen uh, here it's emphasized to us that it's coming from God to Christ through an angel to John, somebody that we can trust. Uh, We've also seen that uh, John was in the spirit while he was receiving this uh, revelation. Uh, Later, he's taken away in the spirit we we, we saw and he sees these incredible visions. This is the process of inscripturation, if you will. God's words being transmitted to a man and recorded for us in what we call the Bible. Uh, scripture is, is God-breathed, it says in Second uh, Timothy 3.16. It is inspired. Here it is sent to John by an angel. And really, in fact, no other book of the Bible makes more of a, a, an issue of this or makes this more known than the book of Revelation. There's no other book of the Bible that has this much emphasis on its specific veracity, the truthness of what is being transmitted to us. And so what should this make us think about the book of Revelation? Uh, should we just disregard it? Should we not talk about it? Uh, because, oh, it's, it's prophecy. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of disagreement about the, these future events. So we're just not going to talk about Revelation. We're just not going to talk about prophecy because, uh, after all, it's, it's just too divisive. Uh, people are going to get offended. And then they won't uh, give to the church. I mean, they won't come to the church. Of course, we're not too concerned about whether or not they give. They're not going to come to our church anymore if we talk about things that are divisive. And prophecy is certainly divisive. And furthermore, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And so that's uh, a real problem to us for wanting to talk about the book of Revelation. And Obviously, that's a real problem. (laughs) Wanting to avoid hurting somebody's feelings because there may be disagreements about future events. Uh, Well, honestly, there are a lot of things that hurt my feelings uh, that that are (laughs) portrayed in the Bible. Uh, There are a whole lot of things like that. A whole lot of things that probably hurt your feelings in the scriptures. It tells us how sinful we are, for one thing. It tells us that our morals are wrong. That can be offensive to people. It tells us when we are selfish. It tells us when we're prideful. It tells us when we are immoral. It tells us when we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, when we do things that are offensive to God. All of those things are offensive. And All of those things can hurt people's feelings. Yes, it tells us about future events. And that maybe could hurt our feelings or there could be uh, divisiveness over our understanding of these things. But one of these future events that we've seen that is very clearly described is God's future judgment on this world because of sin. There's a connection. There's a connection between sin and future events as described 
in the book of Revelation. Sin leads to judgment. And that, I believe, is why people in Christendom don't want to talk about the book of Revelation. I think it has very little to do with whether you're post-mill or ah-mill or you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture or a a mid-tribulation rapture or this, that, or the other thing concerning the rapture. Make no mistake, a consistent literal interpretation of Scripture leads to a pre-tribulation rapture and a pre-millennial return of Christ. That is indisputable. Anyone who differs from those positions is not using a consistent literal interpretation. The real reason why people don't want to talk about the book of Revelation future events is because it involves the judgment of sin. And talking about sin doesn't bring them in, if you will. I just, the Lord just gave me that rhyme. Uh, (laughs) When we, when we talk about sin, people get offended and they don't want to hear about it. And that's to, our, that's to our detriment. It is very loving to point out sin in a person's life. Of, you, know, you don't have to beat them over the head or, or these kinds of things. You can do it in a loving way, the same way that you would do with your children. But nevertheless, it is not loving to avoid sin, to encourage people in their sin, Like is so prevalent in the month of June in particular, we are encouraging people, we are lifting people up. In fact, in much of corporate America, we are uh, commanded to affirm people in their sin. And that's a real problem. That isn't loving. Don't be duped by uh, the lies of Satan. He He is a counterfeiter. He is a liar from the beginning. And he, he completely flips the truth of the matter that we are somehow being tricked into thinking that it's loving to encourage people in their sin. That is the exact opposite of the truth. And so a study of prophecy, the fact that these words are faithful and true, our very next verse is going to tell us (laughs) that Christ is coming again. And that brings up sin and judgment. So, in large measure, the seeker-sensitive or whatever it's called today, that's so 2010s or 2000s, whatever, whatever the phrase is today uh, for seeker-friendly. They don't want to talk about the book of Revelation because they don't want to talk about sin. And the two are intimately intertwined. Uh, sin and judgment go hand-in-hand hand together. And personally, I do want to talk about those things. I do want to talk about sin and how to have a a right relationship with the Lord for eternal life and as believers. That's the point of the church is to edify believers, encourage us in Christ's likeness. So by avoiding future events, we're avoiding talking about sin. And then you're just left with pop psychology and, and hoping that everybody feels good. And that is not the purpose of the church. We need to be going by what the text says. And so how should we interpret these words? If they're faithful and true, how do we interpret them? And and as I've said, 
before uh, a consistent, literal, grammatical, historical interpretation is the best way to figure out what God is trying to say to us. The words as they literally appear, do they make plain sense? Can this make sense? Then, yeah, that's what it says. Uh, Use the rules of language. uh, Understand the audience, the author, these various things. And when we do that, the text will speak for itself and lays out our timeline. Seven years of tribulation, Christ comes again, a thousand years of kingdom, great white throne judgment, eternal state. That is uh, what is, is laid out to us. These words are faithful and true because they came from God to an angel, to the apostle John, and then to the churches for us to uh, know what God is going to do in the future. If we know what he's going to do in the future, we can be more secure in our lives today. Uh, uh, and we don't have to live in fear uh, of the things that are going on around us today. So when are these things going to happen? Notice again, verse 6 the end of verse 6 and verse 7, they said it's, he sent his angel to show to his bondservants, uh, to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Verse 7, and behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. It is written to the bondservants. That is uh, the, the Greek term there is doulos. Sometimes it's translated as slaves here in the NASB. It's, it's bondservants. Uh, sometimes it's just servants. Uh, interesting for us to understand these, uh, that this term, often it, has, uh, it can be used in several different ways. Here, I believe it is being used as voluntary Servants. We have a kind of a, a skewed idea of what slavery means or, or servanthood means in America today. We automatically think of the 1800s and the Civil War and all of these kinds of things, people being taken against their will into slavery. And that is not, that is not uh, all-encompassing of this word, doulos, in the Greek and slavery in general, it was actually much different than that. And it was different than that even in America uh, early on. There's what are people who were called, what we refer to them as indentured servants. It's essentially they are, they're volunteering themselves to be servants for a number of reasons, one of which was to pay a debt. Uh, there, there are a number of accounts of people who uh, became indentured servants to the person who paid their way from Europe to America. Okay, I'll serve you for five years or whatever it is uh, in order to pay for you helping me to get here to America. Uh, We see kind of a similar, uh, similar story with Jacob in the Old Testament, uh, being a servant for a number of years for his wife. He ends up doubling the time and, and then even addition, time in addition to that. This is, this is the kind of uh, statement or the kind of definition that is being used here when it speaks of us as bondservants. 
We are not taken by Christ against our will to be his slaves, like uh, slave traders in uh, Africa and these kinds of things. That is not at all what is pictured by this term. We are voluntary bondservants or slaves of God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 makes this very clear to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. There's the voluntary part. You are voluntarily agreeing with what God says. By his grace, he offers to you eternal life through the shed blood of Christ. You receive it by way of faith, trust in him. And Paul emphasizes the fact, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift. You don't earn it through your works. It's not you, it's from God. Verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That is voluntary servant servanthood, if you will. You're voluntarily agreeing to uh, trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's your debt. You have a sin debt hanging over you uh, that cannot be paid with good works. It can only be paid through trusting in the work that has been done for you. But you are created for good works. You're not saved by good works. You are created by them. You are not saved through good works. You're saved to do good works. Voluntary servanthood. Uh, and that is who this, is, this book is written to and for. And largely, it is about the things which must soon take place. At the end of verse 6, we see that phrase. And what are the things which must soon take place? Well, that again is our outline verse. Revelation 1, 19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. That's what he's referring to when he says the things which must soon take place. That's uh, the, the third part of our outline there. The tribulation events essentially are the next events that are, that are on the horizon uh, for us. And so what does he mean when he says soon, or when it says soon there in verse six, and this really goes hand in hand with verse seven, and behold, I am coming quickly. There's a, there's a tie-in that we don't really see in our English Bibles, but in the Greek is, is very obvious because it's the same word in two different forms. The word is uh, tacos, not tacos, like you get a couple doors down, but taxos uh, to make it more clear. And that is, uh, I think I have it here. Yeah, I even have the definition in my in my uh, notes here from the BDAG, the Greek lexicon or Greek dictionary, but everybody uses uh, number one definition for this re this word taxos is a very brief period of time with focus on the speed of an activity or event. Event speed, quickness, swiftness, 
haste. And that's kind of the avenue that a lot of people within dispensational circles will go to this definition of the word. When, it, when he says soon, uh, what he actually means is quickly. So when it happens, it's going to happen quick. And I, I probably have said that before in the past. And based on further review, that's probably not completely correct. Not a, not a completely correct uh, way of looking at it. The second definition of this uh, term is pertaining to a relatively brief time subsequent to another uh, point of time. So what we would normally think of as soon. Soon this message will be over, believe it or not, and we'll go eat lunch. So in that regard, it was still soon, uh, lunch was still soon, even at 11 o'clock when we began our service. Why, why could I say that lunch is soon? Back at 11, when, when we've got to make it through all the songs and through the entire message and all of that doesn't seem very soon. Well, it is the next event to take place. And that, I believe, is exactly uh, what is being spoken of here. And that's why it says in verse 7, where it says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. In the Greek, the first soon is taxos. That's a noun. And it is implying imminence. It is the next event to take place. Behold, I am coming quickly is taxus. And that is an adverb. And it's describing the way that it's going to take place. So actually, both of those ideas are, are what is being implied. When Christ comes again, it is going to happen very quickly. And it is, uh, these events are the next events to take place. Jesus's second coming is to this earth to establish his kingdom is not imminent. How could you say that? Well, we've just spent about the last year studying all of the events that are going to take place before he comes again to the earth to establish his kingdom. Him coming in the clouds for us in the rapture is a soon event. It is imminent. It is literally the next event that will uh, take place in regards to the church anyway. It could happen at any time, put it that way. Nothing else has to happen before he can come again for us in the rapture. These events that will take place upon the earth are soon also because they are next on the timeline for The kingdom to come to the earth, and this this isn't really the greatest chart. I thought it was going to be so much better than it is. (laughs) Uh, This one maybe is better. Uh, Where we are here is the church age uh, that goes that we are living in today, then the rapture will take place. And then these events, which are described in Revelation, will be next. That's why they can be spoken of as being soon. They're coming soon. It's on the precipice. It is the next thing to take 
place. Not necessarily that it's going to be tomorrow or when John was writing it, that it would be uh, in a number of days or months, but it is the next event to take place. And when will that all kick off? Well, we don't really know because uh, that's, that's the way that God wants us to live our lives today in the church age not knowing, so that we have a sense of urgency to do the things that we ought to be doing, to live the way that we ought to be living, looking for him to come again for us. And when we notice this, verse 7, behold, I am coming quickly. That's a command. We ought to be paying attention. That's literally what it says. Look here, pay attention to this. Uh, I am coming again quickly. We should be paying attention to prophecy. Paul tells the Thessalonians to not disregard the prophetic statements. Pay attention to these things. Uh, These are directed, this is obviously directed to church age believers. It's written to uh, the churches. This entire book is. It's a very similar meaning to uh, taxos that we have Here, it's describing the way, that's what an adverb is, it's describing a verb, the way a verb is going to uh, take place. So I think that this one, behold, I am coming quickly, is probably directed to us in speaking of the rapture of the church. Uh, That is an imminent event. It will happen in the blink of an eye, Uh, the twinkling of an eye, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. His coming to the earth is not imminent, as we've seen. Uh, The the rapture of the church, of course, could happen at any time. And then notice those words. The reason why we ought to be paying attention to him coming quickly is, blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the sixth of seven beatitudes or blessing statements that we have here. And John Wolverd has this interesting quote in his commentary concerning this sixth of the seven uh, beatitudes. He says, this verse contains the sixth of the seven beatitudes found in the book of Revelation. How ironical it is that this final book of the Bible, more neglected and misinterpreted than any other book, should carry these special notes of promised blessing to those who properly regard its promises and divine revelation. Basically, the reason is not that this book contains more or varied revelations, but rather that this book, above all others, honors and exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. How unfortunate it is that people are disregarding the book of Revelation when it shows us so much about who Christ actually is. And then finally, quickly notice the worship. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, verse 8. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and those who heed the words of this book, worship God. Again, I, John, am hearing and seeing. It doesn't, it kind of comes, it reads as past tense there in verse eight. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. That's not what it, the way it's rendered in the Greek. It's uh, 
present active participles, actually. I am the one who's hearing and seeing these things, emphasizing again the fact that he is uh, the witness to these things. And he uh, is overwhelmed by this sight of the angels so that he literally falls down and worships. That's what is described there. There's a lot of uh, uh, misunderstanding about worship that we've spent some time talking uh, talking about in previous services. But he submitted himself to the angel. That's uh, what is described there. He did this once earlier. In Revelation 19, uh, verse 10, Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Uh, that ought to give us an indication of what these, how these angels appear. That not just once, but two times, John is, is led to fall down and submit himself to these angels. That's what worship is. Submitting yourself to a being that is greater than you are. Uh, worship is not necessarily music. It, it can be uh, performed through uh, music, but that uh, needs to be the kind of music that is helping us to understand who God is and who we are in light of who he is. That is worship. How can we worship someone that we don't know? It's impossible. You can't. That's why the study of God's word is worship as well, as we are learning more about who he is so that we can recognize his superiority to us in every, every area of life. That is true worship. And so, although John falls down and worships this angel, the angel does not accept the worship. Unlike Jesus, who does accept worship, there's one of the, the great ways to find out whether uh, in the Old Testament, especially, does this, this person that people are seeing accept their worship? That's probably a good indication that that is God. The angels do not accept uh, worship ever, as this angel does not hear. And so uh, he commands John or tells John, and in fact it is a command, to worship God. So why should we worship God? That's the whole, that's our whole uh, message here. That's the title of our message. So we made it. Why should we worship God and not angels or someone or something else? Well, the fact of the matter is that he is our creator. We've seen that in Revelation. Revelation 4.11. It says, the scene in heaven. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. All of the problems that we are facing in this world today ultimately go back to the fact that we are, uh, in some regard, neglecting God as our creator. Why are people so adamantly or over-the-top sinful in this world today? They are rejecting that God is their creator. 
Or at the very least, maybe they accept, yeah, he created me and I don't care. That's kind of what the Israelites were doing that we see in the book of Ezekiel. Yeah, yeah, God created us. We'd rather, we would rather worship the creation instead of the creator. And that's a, a lot of what is going on in the world today. Not submitting to the fact that God created us and therefore we are his subjects. We are subject to him because he created us. That is worship. Recognizing God as your creator and submitting to him. That is a very uh, wonderful form of worship. We worship him because he is worthy. Revelation 5, 12. Uh, These creatures around the uh, throne of God in heaven saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. These things that we are allowed to look into here in the book of Revelation, this description of the new Jerusalem, the descriptions of heaven, they're, they're almost incomprehensible because of the great worth and power of God. And finally, his words are faithful and true. So of course, we should worship him. Everything that emanates from God is truth because he is truth and he's therefore worthy of worship. We saw that in uh, this repetition of this idea that his words are faithful and true. So worship God because he created you. He is worthy of worship and he's telling you the truth. And so when he tells us the truth, the truth about the future, we can be more secure in our lives today. As the pastor Chester McCauley said, a Christian who does not understand what God has done in the past and does not have faith in what God will do in the future will be consumed by the crisis of the present. And that statement just could not be any more true and is very descriptive of uh, much of Christendom today, consumed by the crisis of the present. May we not do that. May we have faith in his word, faith in what he is going to do soon. It is next on the horizon. And may we worship him with the time that we have. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation, this ancient text that is still so relevant to us today. I pray that we would live in light of the truths that we have here. I pray that we would be people who heed the words of the prophecy of this book, that we live in light of its truths, that you are coming again for us and that you are coming to judge sin. And may we uh, be people who are living in light of that truth Yes, our sins have been paid for on the cross of Christ. Yes, we are, as believers, completely, wholly reliant upon you and your shed blood on the cross, but you still desire for us to live uh, lives that are pure. You still desire for us to live lives that are conformed to your image. May we not uh, take for granted your grace. May we not shun your grace but instead, because of your grace, be motivated to live more uh, more completely for you. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us in that endeavor. Make us soft to your conviction and help us to be a light for you in this world that is so dark and desperately in need of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name.
Amen.